You're listening to the Lawman's Lounge, a podcast dedicated to help you take back control of your life and your business. Here's your host, Bill, the Lawman Umansky. Hey, it's Bill Umansky, the Lawman, and welcome to our fourth season of the Lawman's Lounge. Welcome, Sam. Appreciate it, Bill. I'm super excited because I know we're going to have fun with this conversation today. I'm glad you come. You came on the show, and we have a lot of stuff to talk about today. And you know, we've had lots of guests on, and I've seen you uh, with your ClickFunnels for years. Uh, and we'll get into that, but tell me just quickly a little bit about yourself uh, so that our audience can know a little bit about you, Sam. So I became a lawyer eight years ago. Uh, pretty much within six months of passing the bar, I started my law firm. And in my first year, I had a lot of time on my hands. So I basically taught myself how to run in a virtual, automated, and scalable law firm. Um, I got exposed to those kind of principles in uh, Tim Ferriss' book. And I basically made a rule, uh, rule uh, to myself that I'm like, I'm going to create a law firm that's both uh, virtual, automated, and scalable. Fast forward, uh, uh, putting this into practice, I've been able to apply this to seven law firms. Um, also, uh, three years ago, I started a journey teaching this to other lawyers. Uh, we've had 500 lawyers who have joined our program where we pretty much share exactly how to create a law firm that runs itself, uh, that gives you a, f- a freedom of time, and that could also scale to seven figures and beyond. So what I thought was interesting about you, Sam, first of all, uh, pronounce your, your last name for the audience. So that Malai. Yeah. So, you know, we like to be diverse on our podcast, and I'm going to be very frank with you. Please. I, first of all, I tend to just have lots of dudes on my show, which is not by, done by design. So we like to try to get more and more women on, and I've had them, and I'm, you're not a woman. <laughs> That's not <laughs> but, <laughs> Yeah, but we also have diversity of race and um, or, you know orientation and cultures. Tell us a little bit about yourself first, personally, before we get into the business side. I sure. noticed that you had you'd done some schooling in Israel, actually. Yeah, I'm actually Persian-Jewish. Uh, which is the dichotomy. That means uh, my family and my ancestors are Jewish. They have been for thousands of years, but we were born in a Muslim country. I was raised in a Muslim country I was until I was eight years old. And Bill, I think you enjoyed this story. Um, in first grade, uh, they would line us up in school. And I remember uh, this story I'm about to share with you. I grew up later and I kind of debated. I'm like, was this real? And I had to double check them with my mom. I'm like, was it a dream? He's like, no, yeah, you did that. <laughs> and basically they would line us up at 7 a.m., um, army, uh, army length apart, which basically means like, uh, you know, an arm uh, length apart. And from like seven to seven twenty in the morning, they would make all the elementary kids death. Uh, they would make them chant death to America, death to Israel. Wow. And at the time I had no idea what America was at all. I had no idea what, I had no association with America. And then, but I knew what Israel was because I was Jewish. So I would basically skip over death to Israel and I would chant death to America and lo and behold, <laughs> <laughs> moved out to uh, United States and uh, basically the, I'm Jewish and part of a, a birthright trip. I went to Israel about 12, 13 years ago, fell in love and I went back and I visited 10 more times. So I've been back to Israel 11 times total and just kind of where I used to chant from to like where it is now I live in the US, which I love. And then also having that freedom of, you know, of opportunity and also being able to go back to Israel. I just could have never imagined it. Where did you live? In Tehran. Yeah. Uh, oh, did you Tehran. live? Did you live actually in Tehran? Yeah. My uh, family uh, lived into the, in the capital. And actually a year before we left, my dad, I guess, was on a business trip. And he took me to like five or six different, uh, different cities in Iran. And the cool thing about Iran is it's a very old like 
country. That means it has a lot of history, thousands of years. So I remember like these visuals of like, can't even explain it. There's like very old buildings and old cities. Um, it's a very beautiful country, but unfortunately, I think the government is very corrupt, and hopefully, there'll be some change soon. So, uh, are you, are you fluent in Farsi? Like, if I say "man bahu shastam," you know what that means? <laughs> yeah, that means I'm very smart. Yeah, I am uh, fluent. And you're very uh, smart, or you fluent? Which one? <laughs> fluent, fluent. <laughs> That's cool. So you're fluent, and um, I think you know I'm married to a Persian. So uh, her name is Zara, which is actually an Arabic name, meaning um, dear to the king or flowers. It's got a lot of different names. Amazing. Uh, but uh, yeah, she wasn't lucky like you. She wasn't born Persian and Jewish. She had to marry into it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So you know what it's like? You tasted it. <laughs> I have tasted it, although we have, we have all of us converted to Christianity. So I think uh, we've got three religions going on in our family, but uh, that's really cool. And so you ended up, what, what did your parents do and how did you end up in the States? Sure. Um, my uh, father was a businessman. Um, essentially, I remember just watching him being on the phone the whole time. <laughs> That's all it was. I'm like, what do you do? Like, where's your office? What do you do? And he was just literally, I think he was a wholesaler of like home goods, home stuff. So basically he would make, I guess, contracts over the phone, um, send shipments. And that was his job. And you know, I guess it was my first time being exposed to entrepreneurship and kind of you know making your own business. Um, but I could definitely feel like his genes are in me, kind of being entrepreneur and kind of selling things and serving people. Did he do that from the house or did he have an office? Yeah, it pretty much was at home, uh, just making calls. That's all it was. It seemed like very minimal work, just like calls. I remember just remember phone calls. That's all it was. So that's interesting. So your background is your father was an entrepreneur, but unlike many parents, he didn't leave the house in the morning. He was working from the home, which is yeah. interesting about how uh, some of those ties tie ins to you doing a lot of virtual stuff yourself, right? I didn't realize that, but it's true. Yeah. I have, Someone's, I'm very yeah. Someone's <laughs> got to realize that stuff. A lot of times we'll go through and analyze you a little bit more. What does your mom do or did? Is she a homemaker? Um, she got, yeah, homemaker, but what, what? yeah, homemaker. But what's cool about her was she, um, she went to school to learn English in Iran. So she was one of the few people who knew how to speak English. So it made the transition much easier when we came, we came here, which really helps a lot. Uh, this really helped a lot. So oh, she was yeah. the bridge, probably. Uh, it probably sped up the process for your dad, and obviously, totally. and, and practically helped me put me into good schools. So she kind of was uh, uh, went and negotiated for me to jump some levels to get into honors programs and AP classes and all that stuff. And that really was, I think, honestly, it helped a lot. Obviously, well, uh, to go to good schools. So she was a tiger mom. She wasn't negotiating. She we stormed I, out to the school and go look. My son needs to be at honors. Literally, literally, literally. Uh, so yeah, yeah. You got your love for virtual from your dad, and then you got that tenacious <laughs> relentlessness from your mom. That's yeah, but I love it. <laughs> Being psychoanalyzed. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, so, uh, so you went to, uh, I think, UCLA. You got a degree in sociology, and uh, right after you went to Southwestern, did you work in college or ever work in law school? Did you have any kind of jobs while you were in school? I, my own, I only had one job in my life, and that was our target for like a month and a half. But uh, besides that, I would since I was like, I don't remember how old I was when I started my first business. I'm gonna assume like nine or ten. I I basically would start side hustles, selling things, um, legal things. <laughs> 
Uh, but one of the big things that I did was I started a tutoring company in high school uh, where I basically put a flyer uh, in my honors college counseling uh, office. And from that, I basically filled up my entire schedule. And then even after I, enti- I filled up my entire schedule, I started getting more calls. So I started hiring my friends. So I basically had this underground tutoring operation in high school, uh, continued into college. And then I basically had to let it go when I started law school. Um, but fast forward, like about 10 years after that, I realized, I'm like, what happened to that tutoring company? Like that was my vision. And I realized, wait a minute, I'm like with what I'm doing right now, that's basically what I'm doing. I'm mentoring and, you know, tutoring people. Why did you go to law school? What was the primary driver? If you had one, even it was, um, friends and influence basically no, uh, good reason. Um, we just kind of seeing my friends go to law school, which I know sounds weird, but that's the truth. Um, but I, honestly, I didn't know what being a lawyer kind of entailed until like became a past the bar and not to work. I'm like, wait a minute, this is what I signed up for. Uh, was, there, really, was, there, was yeah. there any subconscious pressure put on you by, um, you got two backgrounds. I mean, everyone likes to think that the Persian background or the Jewish background, but you, there's a Japanese background. There's a lot of backgrounds, but there's, you know, I, I know from, the Persian background from being married into it and the family, there's a big emphasis on uh, on professionalism or being a professional, serving others versus being a straight out entrepreneur, although there's plenty of examples of Persian entrepreneurs. So did you feel any of that pressure at all? Totally. Yeah. There's a huge pressure to continue the education, not just go beyond university and then continue that. Um, So I basically had three choices at med school, business school, or law school. Initially, I wanted to do business school, um, but I heard some comments from my mom, which kind of threw me off. And basically, I'm like, okay, fine, I'll do law school. So you went along with your mother's plan all along. <laughs> Mom's a smart lady in the room. So that's funny. I, I My son is going to play professional poker next year after he graduates NYU. And uh, what's interesting is, you know, his mom is Persian. And um, whenever we talk to mom and Bubba, and it's, I just love saying, Oh, you know, our eldest, you know, he's at Goldman Sachs and he just left. He's at a company. And I just love going, yeah, mama and Bubba. And uh, Jake's going to play professional poker in Europe next year. And they're like, oh, that's uh, 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 great. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's great. <laughs> and then my wife just chips in. She's like, it is great. And that's he's got the money to support himself. So he's already working in college. So he's doing that. So, yeah, the pressure I just, you know, that is interesting. And sometimes we find our ways through law school for noble reasons. Sometimes it's by laziness. Sometimes it's by culture. Sometimes we have that desire, like I did when I was uh, just since kindergarten, I want to be an attorney. So it is different. Uh, but tell me, tell me a little bit about quickly uh, your experience in law school. Did you play around with any business ideas when you were in law school? Because you said you let go of the tutorial company. Um you know, that the high school jam that you worked through school and maybe college, but what about in law school? Were you thinking even then about business when you were in school? Oh yeah. I was writing business plans. Um, one of the business plans I wrote was for starting a law firm, which was named Molai Law. So when I started my law firm, I guess I just followed my business plan. So that was one thing. Another thing that I thought was really cool was I wrote a business plan for what I thought was out of, out of the box kind of thinking something that nobody else was doing, which was what they called MCNs, multi-channel networks, which are basically agencies for YouTubers. I basically thought I was, you know, I, I didn't think, I didn't know about of this whole thing existing. And I wrote out this like fresh business plan about how you could basically, there's a whole 
sect of this growing population that's YouTubers, what if you support them through basically an agency, you know, help them make deals, you know, help them with their contracts, et cetera. And I wrote this whole thing. And then like two years later, I'm like, wait a minute, this whole thing has existed for the past two or three years. I just didn't know about it. Um, and then just a bunch of these, um, and side hustles and things, selling uh, uh, bar outlines. It was my first time actually getting exposed to like just selling something online. Um, basically, I, I learned how to create a sales page and um, how to do running Google Ads. So I basically ran Google Ads to a sales page to sell these bar outlines. Um, kind of exposed me to like, whoa, I could make money. Like I remember one time I was at a club and I was literally getting notifications that I'm selling these hundred fifty dollar outlines and I was like, "Well, this is so cool!" Like tonight I made hundred fifty bucks. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So all these you know little projects, ventures along the way, kind of added up to like all the experience that it gave me to do what I do now. And so you had started working for uh, you did some employment work uh, and then you opened your firm uh, with, within two years of uh, of leaving the. Um, leaving this other office. And I think my question for you is you had spent about almost four years with this other lawyer. What did you learn from that lawyer that you carried forward when you opened your own firm? That what, long, what are the yeah. three things you do? Let's just do three things. Three things that you learned to do and three things maybe not to do. I think the biggest lesson was that law could be black and white, but if you pave your own path, you could essentially do whatever you want. And you know, when I was in that role working at an employment law firm, which by the way, most of it was in during law school, um, I am like, this is, it felt it was fed to me. This is what you have to do. This is what the, the you know, within the, the, the boundaries of these instructions you have to do. And then I was basically, it was very upsetting because I'm like, I see a better way. There's a more efficient way. What if I use text expanders? Why do you have to continue writing this whole thing? Or what do you have to copy and paste this thing? I could just use a text expander or I could create the most optimized template and, you know, get this done. And th those kinds of things, like basically, uh, you know, I wanted to disrupt the way that it was so black and white. And when I left, finally, I basically had a blank slate to say, well, I want to serve as many clients as I could, the fast as I could. So let me go build it off from scratch like this. So I never, I never was pretty much, you know, had my own sl uh, blank slate to kind of create my own vision. So you opened your firm uh, in about 2015. You've had that and you've kind of morphed it into uh, multiple firms. Uh, tell me kind of uh, how you started that. What, what was the reason for your success for that? And uh, I, I would say start with bringing in the cases. So how did you start bringing in the cases that you could then ultimately open so many different firms? So from the get-go, I basically taught myself how to use online resources to get clients. Nothing traditional. So it was all literally Google ads, SEO, website, YouTube videos, things like that. Um, and then I started transitioning over to really teaching myself how to do Google ads and then Facebook ads and then YouTube ads and TikTok ads. And I started uh, taking things that were working in, in other markets, kind of in my horizontal markets and applying it to the legal market. And that's when things really blew up. Um, when I basically started focusing on making my specialty, how to generate clients online on a mass scale, and also how to automate it so that I have my virtual team that could sign them up, that sends them off. Once they're signed up, sends them off to my virtual you know, onboarding team and then my virtual filing team. And um, little by little, when I saw the pieces being put together, I'm like, hmm, that was pretty easy. Let me duplicate this same exact thing that I just built over because it doesn't take that much, honestly. If you know what you're doing, um, you know, 
especially, you know, you don't have to overthink things, especially if you don't overthink it, you just like set it up. Great. It's working. I'm getting clients. Okay. Let me go do this over and over. So I did that. Um, and you know, uh, up until a couple of months ago, I was running seven different operations at the same time as I'm doing my legal academy. Now, uh, the transition that I'm going towards right now in 2023 is going from seven down to three and four, do way more of our top ones, and then do uh, and basically cut out the bottom ones. It's a joke that I have, like uh, some people A-B test landing pages. And I've been able to be lucky enough to be able to uh, A-B test businesses now and kind of figure out which are the top ones and then go hard and, and go all in on, on the top ones. Yeah, that I mean that's great because uh, you you were able to to scale quickly enough to do a macro uh, you know a macro A B testing as opposed to detail. But who's doing the actual work for your different firms and how did you set that up? And I'm not talking about the virtual assistants, but the legal work specifically. So usually the the day to day is run by a virtual team. So that is you know gathering the intake information, collecting the documents, doing the filings. A lot of the reviews, honestly, the, the lawyers like the last layer just to review everything, make sure the team is doing their thing, and they you know they put they push it forward. Um, so yeah, we usually have at least one in house, maybe sometimes two, just to make sure that we have insurance if, if something happens to that one lawyer. Um, and then sometimes we also do uh, referrals; we pass them off to other attorneys. So what are what are the seven firms that you're boiling down to three or four? What practice types? Yeah. <laughs> um, the lemon law uh, and employment are our two biggest ones at this point. So you're doing lemon law and employment, and a lot of that's litigation heavy uh, or not. I don't know if you're in California, so it may be different, but here employment law is very litigation heavy. Uh, lemon law is not as uh, it's not as lucrative in Florida as it in California. So kind of tell me, is there a litigation component to that and um, are you no, like that out yeah. or are you just handling that in-house? Usually it's pre-lit, a lot of pre-lit. Pre-lit basically means it could be a lot of it could be automated. So a lot of it is usually automated. So if it gets to lit, you ha- how have you found referral attorneys? Because it sounds like you've done a very good job at getting the back of the house done. And if it's pre-lit, you're able to do that. And you know that you can do a lot of that with virtual assistants and just have the lawyer to review and get it out. Because a lot of it is not overcomplicated. People overcomplicate it. But when it, when you do have cases that need to go into litigation, uh, how have you been able to find attorneys that you trusted to do that? Because that's not always easy, especially if your background yourself was not as a litigator. So how were you able to develop those relationships? Did you have any problems with those relationships and finding the right kind of people that would do the work and report back to you? No, we, have, we pretty much have a system to meeting new lawyers that we can refer out to. Um, we built out the system how to find them, how to contact them, how to talk to them, how to send them up uh, and how to onboard them and start sending them referrals. And then from that, we have managers who check in, get status updates, collect the, the referrals and all that stuff. And then from that, we get the data of, well, here's the best one. Here's the best uh, attorneys who can handle more, best attorneys that could do, uh, you know, provide higher settlements. And from that, you know, strategically, we, over time, we basically, instead of doing it for more lawyers, we're now we're trying to do the theme for 2023 is more with less, uh, yeah. pretty much. And, that, and you know, that's funny. You keep you mentioned 2023, and I don't know whether you want to jump to 2023, but I want to take you back first to the thing that uh, you were kind of known for, which is ClickFunnels. 
Um, so talk to our audience about when click funnels were found, who's the grandfather of that, who you learn from, um, maybe like the benefits of it now and also where you see it going. There's a lot of people that speculate that it's not going anywhere. And there's people that are still doing very, very well with it. So um, talk about your history with ClickFunnels and, uh, you know, who did you learn from? Who are some of the great people out there in the space? Uh, how long do you see it lasting for? Uh, that kind of thing. Totally. So ClickFunnels, when people hear about ClickFunnels, they, it's very polarizing. They're like, they either think it's the biggest scam or they think it's the best thing that was ever invented. And the people who think are the biggest scams are the people who just don't understand it. It's kind of like Bitcoin. It's, you know, there's only two camps. Either you believe in it or you don't. It's the same thing. So if you find yourself there, and, and I find out is you cannot convince a skeptic. A skeptic is going to be a skeptic. But I've, I've, uh, I've been able to utilize ClickFunnels to basically make multi-million dollars across multiple different law firms. And it, it's basically the foundation of it is when you have people that have a problem, how do you sign them up as a client? And that's what ClickFunnels is the, is the middle piece of that it helps you figure out how to optimize and how to increase your chance of actually you signing up as many clients as you possibly can with the, for the lowest amount of money that you could spend. Um, how to put that together is basically one of the aspects of our program of my legal academy, uh, basically how to put this together and make funnels work for generating clients for your law firm. Yeah. I, and I, we're going to talk more about your legal academy, but tell us a little bit about how you got into ClickFunnels, the process real quick. We don't want to do a, a big tutorial with it, just an sure. overview because you'd be surprised. We have a lot of listeners and uh, some of them, they, they they don't know how to fall in any camp. They don't know what the hell it is, actually, believe it or not. They're too busy. Sure. For, so. sure. It's more of concepts that you apply to your law firm. Okay, so it's not a specific page or specific gimmicky video. It's a it's a whole system. What's a system? The best way I could explain it is the first thing you want to do in the system is you want to get your leads contact information. There's different ways to go about that, and this changes over time. It used to be ClickFunnels pages, but now these Facebook ads platforms and TikTok and Google have their own lead forms where you're able to capture leads friends and run right at the outset of, of your client generation. But that's the first thing. Second thing is you need to nurture your leads. You can't just expect people to just sign up with you. So if that's the case, you need to build some automations. There's two automations or three things that you want to do. One is automated emails. The second is automated text to get, get in contact with them third, uh, right away. Third is a video. You need to have a series of emails or some form of videos where people, as soon as they become a lead, they hear from you. So that they know this is something something you do because so that you can build the trust and authority that you can help them down the line. The third part is that that kind of uh, is kind of combined with the second part is automations. Again, make sure that that's set up. So as long as you capture the leads, you nurture them, and you have automations, and you build a system that you constantly refine over time. The best ad, the best funnel, best uh, follow-ups, best automation, all that stuff that you refine over time. That's what basically gets you a, a, a three to five percent converting funnel. If you have something that basically, if you can sign up three to five out of a hundred people that you come to your funnel, then essentially you're a multi seven figure law firm. And so a lot of these other channels are competing with that, right? There are different channels that, that all have their own language um, that you basically have to know how to use those specific channels to make it work, to go attract those leads to your funnel. Yep. So you, when you were doing this process, uh, 
at, at the time because you're someone that continues to learn, 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 learn. And um, what what was giving you the idea? Because that was the first thing you were teaching other lawyers to do. Uh, then what gave you the idea of the academy uh, and, and how did that work into the academy? So about four and a half years ago, I basically met my mentor organically. I was basically one of the clients. When I'm once I discovered that this works for myself, I basically went around LA pitching personal injury lawyers uh, that I could do it for. And one of those um, clients um, was eventually ended up being my mentor. Um, and my mentor basically started, you know, mentoring me, guiding me, giving me a big, broad vision of this is your skill. This is what you're best at. Let's go tackle this. And once I got that guidance and that direct feedback to constantly do this over and over feedback, go do feedback, go do, go do feedback. That's when I saw my uh, growth uh, pretty much quadruple almost every single year. And when I saw that myself, I'm like, wait a minute, this is something very powerful. What if I take this model of mentoring and tutoring and I do it in a group coaching kind of setting? And, um, and that has really panned out. So that means I, I was basically able to build a curriculum and a program from scratch. That basically the mission is if we need to help you know, hundreds and thousands of lawyers at the same time, how can we provide the community, the, the information, the, the check-ins, the accountability, everything that's like a multi-encompassing kind of program that could help lawyers increase their chance of actually being very successful with all these systems. So who do you mind telling me who your mentor was to tell our guests who your mentor was? To sure. His, him, yeah, his, hard credit? yeah. His name is Hamid Cohen and his uh, company's name is Legal Soft. And uh, one of the, the many things that he does uh, is uh, basically hiring virtual assistants for law firms. That's pretty cool. Uh, and are you still uh, together with him? Did you ever decide that you'd want to do business with him or is it just your business or yeah. separate? Definitely. Yeah. We're very, very engaged and uh, talk daily, um, literally every single day for the past four years. And yeah, we do uh, business together in different capacities. Oh, that's cool. So uh, so tell us a little bit about the Legal Academy uh, in more specifics and how if someone joins, uh, you know, you have segments, to, to, you know, tell us what it would be like to join the Academy, please. Sure. So um, our program is for uh, lawyers and their teams. So it's not just like come learn, but also we can train your team for you. So if your team needs to get better and setting up clients, well, we have a whole intaker track. If your team needs to collect documents, well, here's the most efficient uh, way to be able to collect documents, et cetera. Everything else you could possibly think about. Um, the second kind of component that's kind of key is the community. You have a place where you're able to ask any question. Also, a lot of questions that you probably have have already been asked before. So whenever something gets asked, we usually have resources. We have essentially Google Docs and Google Sheets for everything you could possibly imagine, which could easily be templatized. And we share that as an open resource for anything you could possibly think about. Lead tracking, client tracking, math, anything possible to think about. So community, resources. Um, also, I've been able to build an in-house support and tech team. Those crucial parts of like lead automations and this and that, things that are kind of technical. We've been able to kind of take that off your hands and say, hey, just fill out this form. And then our team comes in, basically sets this up for you. Again, because uh, I got the freedom to be able to build this from scratch, I just thought about like what will bring us the most results for our lawyers. And I basically went and kind of built that for our program. So, you know, as you know, you're in this space where there's a lot of different kind of competition. And 
what I notice is that there'll be questions asked of each of you, which I don't normally ask because it's just a waste, actually. But the, the question that will be asked generally, and I'm not asking you, actually, uh, but I'm going to follow up. The question is, you know, how does yours compare to A, B, C, and D? And Great. everyone yeah. everyone is pitching their own deal. And in fact, what's most amusing to me uh, is going to a conference and almost they're all there together. And then... <laughs> In fact, it's even more laughable that they hang out together. So, so it's it's kind of like you almost think there's a mastermind for all of the uh, people out there that are doing this kind of coaching work. And uh, so, but there is a difference between some of the programs, uh, and I, I some of it's substantive, and sometimes it's more about the personality. So, if you notice, I'm not mentioning names of of these different individuals, but they've exploded on the scene. Like you, you're basically new-ish, but not really, because you've been doing it long enough now where your legal academy is relatively new, but you've been in the space for a while, but there've been other, it's just still a new space. Like all of a sudden, remember the life coach thing where, you know, they had life coaches and people were joking around like, what's a life coach? Doesn't mean anything. And now it's become a big industry. There's probably some really, really good life coaches. So you don't need to go to a therapist maybe as much anymore. The life coach looks head prospectively, not behind. And so now you have this legal life coaching at the whole market. I call it the legal life coach. I actually own deathcoach.com, by the way. And I just got rid of it. I was just trying to figure out how, what you'll probably buy it now. Just trying to, how to figure <laughs> out what I can do with death coach. But, uh, but man, you're probably going to buy it. Shit. I should have said anything, but like, but you, you understand there's a lot of legal life coaches out there. So how would you compare your system to others without mentioning people and, why should people choose the legal academy uh, versus another organization? It's a great question because I will, I'm gonna, uh, you know, I'm super excited to answer this. Number one is a lot of these other marketing companies are just the, the only practice that they have is marketing you. So when they show their case studies and things, it's usually look how much money we spend on Facebook ads. That's a whole different ballgame than generating clients in the legal field. It literally is a different language, different thing until you put your own money your mouth is, and you create your own systems to sign up clients, do the entire operation, you essentially are just, are just doing it based on whatever YouTube video or books that you read. For us, ours is mine is based on actual application that I've actually been able to do myself first for our law firms, across multiple law firms. When I go down through those radiations and those problems and things, that's when I'm actually going through the problem solving and those little nuances that a lot of people are not dealing with. And I, when I troubleshoot those nuances and that's when I go finally go share it. Here's the actual application. When we hired multiple VAs, we can see that about three out of five of them are going to be amazing VAs. One of them should be the manager. Two of them should be go beyond the manager. And it's basically we're sharing app, uh, applicable, uh, relevant application, basically. Second thing is I'm playing the long-term game. Uh, you know, I'm, luck, uh, I'm blessed enough for my law firms to generate 10 times more than my legal academy. So my money is coming from that. I'm happy. I'm content. And honestly, I don't even seek money. And, but it keeps me going. But my, my legal academy is a passion project where I'm like, this is ultimately, even if I retire and I have all the money in the world, what would I be doing? It's essentially this because I love sharing. I love giving. I always had this inherent need and desire to want to share and give. And this is my way of giving back. Yeah. Third, so, so yeah. what's, oh, go ahead. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to, yeah. um, sure. I'm going to say something about you in a second, but go ahead. What's the third thing? Third thing is everything that we do is based on being strategic and smart. Okay. 
That means we're laser pointing exactly what's going to give us the most results for the lowest amount of input. We're not trying to do everything. I don't push everybody to do videos. I also understand that everybody is built different. I don't give general advice. I give general principles that is applied to based on who you are and also is very based on, again, a lot of thought going to the planning, 80% planning and 20% doing. So that when you finally do it, you're trying to get, you're going to get the most results for you actually when you do do it. So just to recap again, applicate based on actual, uh, actual practical uh, application of being a lawyer. Second, long-term kind of minded and third, just being strategic with everything we do. Yeah. I love the 80, 20 principle. And my point to you before I, uh, before I really was interrupting you is that you do give a lot of, uh, a lot of information out that's free. You know, as you know, I don't, I'm not a customer of yours and uh, no real desire to pitch one person or the other. So I just kind of let our listeners know, you know, really what's happening. And I, you know, I, I do notice that you do give a lot of information out. Uh, I actually check out some of that information. Uh, and there's some things that I find very, very helpful. Others, Kind of, you know, it's either something that's not helpful to me or not interested in, but I can tell you that you definitely put out a lot of information for people that's free and actually information that's useful if they would take it upon themselves to use that information. And I know you know the principle of give, 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 and, you know, ultimately that will come back and a lot of people can't do stuff for themselves and they'll ultimately come back to the people that give them stuff. But I feel like uh, your stuff is given very generously uh, and um, you give a lot of good information out there, and actually, it's great. I, uh, you know, I think that's great. So I, I yeah, but I, I will push you just a little bit. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people that are in that space that they either are not lawyers or they're lawyers that are hiding behind their marketing, and they're actually making more money in their marketing than they are in their firm, actually. And there have been some that have separated themselves by actually showing what they actually make. Now you could you could probably as a lawyer uh gin that up but you're going to get disbarred. So there have been some separators because I think you know some people look at all that overwhelming marketing and they believe like there's just no way that person could have that many that much income coming in. And so I think some of that has been dispelled by actual settlement checks that come across in the social media. Uh, they're not lying about the social check. They know that a lawyer, you know, most bar complaints come from not clients, but lawyers. A lawyer can turn in another lawyer easily. So, uh, and the bar is not, you know, the bar is very traditional, as you know, and you got to be very, very careful. A lot of, when people start hating you is when you become a target. So, you know, I, I think I'm referring to the the legal based marketers are out there, and there's a number of them. Uh, so, you know, have you ever considered being fully transparent with your books? Because uh, I haven't seen that yet. I've seen globally general. Here's a settlement check, uh, and you know, if you show a five hundred thousand dollars settlement check, it's not large enough where there would be disbelief, and it's not low enough where people are like not impressed. So people are figuring out, ah, there's either like a a hundred to two hundred fifty thousand dollar fee on that case. He's doing something right, or she's doing something right. So how would you how would you dispel that? Because I think there's more people coming in the space that are lawyers like you, and they would say, "I'm a lawyer, of course. I share your pain. I'm empathetic. I know what you're going through." Sure. So one thing, a couple of different thoughts. One is, uh, it's it's very hard for me to share actual numbers. And the only reason why I do is because just marketing, that's, I know that's what attracts people to it. But me, myself, do I want to personally? No, 
If anything, I'd rather keep it under wraps and just do what I do and just continue grinding forward. One thing that does help is, is these on the wall. These are actual things that in order for me to receive these, I have to basically record a Loom video of my bank account and my Stripe account to show these. And so I let, usually, let, let's, yeah. let's just talk about that because we're not, we're not doing a video of this. It's not going to be released to podcast. We usually are in my studio and there's a video. So I want our listeners to know what's on the back of your wall. So please tell them that, of course. Yep. So it's these plaques that ClickFunnels gives you for basically generating a million dollars online with ClickFunnels. And usually whenever, uh, before I would get them, I usually put it out there. <laughs> I'm going to receive the Tucumba Club Award within the next year. At first I say, I put it out there. Not only does it, uh, usually it's for me to hold myself accountable to actually do it. So for every single one of these, I've done that. Before I ever received it, I'm going to say I'm probably I'm a year away from receiving two more. So I've been able to do this four times over be able to apply these systems and things that I, uh, that I do and also teach to other lawyers how to generate millions online for, with, for three different law firms and one for basically for my legal academy um, that's very rinse and repeatable. Also, I, I'm also at the same time, I'm saying in the next two years, two of these are going to turn to $10 million. I know my trajectory. I know exactly how I'm doing and how much I've fast I'm growing. I promise you within you get here and we do another recording in, in two years, two of these will be $10 million ones, plaques. And potentially a couple of them put it essentially be $50 million. So, you know, just, um, you know, practice what I preach, playing the long-term game. Um, if anybody is dying to see it, sure. I have no problem jumping on a zoom with you and showing it. Um, but yeah, that's not honestly me personally. I'd rather not, not talk about money or anything like that. I'd rather just provide value and help our members as much as possible and just, you know, focus on that. So, you know, uh, the um, that transitions us a little bit into you were talking a little bit about what your future holds as far as financially with the stuff back on the wall and showing how you provide credibility to people so they know that you're actually making money that you're saying you're making, uh, which is good because uh, you know some lawyers are just saying that without proof. Others are actually showing the proof is the pudding, which I think is admirable because they're they're at least able to show what they're doing in order to get cases. Uh, because there are some out there in that space that are not at all, actually. So I don't know if it's... Yeah. Let me just add one more thing too. Sure. I would not be able to do what I do inside the My Legal Academy unless if I had that actual practical application of everything that I share. There's a lot of stuff that I share about, here's what works about lead conversions and this and that. And that that's when I, you know, I do share at that point, I do share my screen of my actual Google Sheets and things showing it. Look, 20,000 leads for this one particular law firm that I just started a year ago. And here's what I learned. So a lot of that is, I can't share it publicly, but it is shared a little bit more and revealed a little bit more inside our program. Yep. And uh, I think that's terrific. So let, let's talk about uh, 2023 and some of the things that you see changing in the legal landscape. I mean, we're already in the first quarter and that's how fast time flies, right? So tell me about what are the... Uh, Things that you see, like maybe the top three things that you see. Yeah. So top three predictions for 2023. The first one is the big elephant in the room, which is what, Bill? Artificial AI. intelligence? Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so I I just, I, yeah. I've been texting my friends today. Uh, you know, while you're making money using AI, I just use it to respond to all my friends making fun of me. So, for instance, I won't put in the query that they made fun of me, but... There was a query and they go, how do I sarcastically respond to this phrase? AI is still learning a little about sarcasm, but it's pretty funny. <laughs> and then yeah. I'm also teaching how my, I'm teaching my sons how to date online. So I, I asked AI what they could put on some 
let me just be honest on Tinder or Hinge, I'm like, what do you say to do this? And it's like, I've also learned that AI has boundaries, by the way. So yes, but tell me about AI, the elephant in the room and about scaling and all that other stuff. Yeah. So when I learned about it, I basically realized it's going to be revolutionary and I jumped on it as soon as I could. So in December, I started thinking about the application of ChatGPT and AI for lawyers. So within two weeks, this is like already a month and a half year old, a month and a half old. Uh, how to use ChatGPT to draft contract, review a contract, do marketing, to do social media, to write content, to do YouTube, productivity, health and entertainment, all that is relevant for lawyers. That's something that's shared inside of our program, kind of the application of, Ch of ChatGPT. Second the thing is, is I kind of see it as a consolidation of the market. I keep track of, let's just say in my practice areas, exactly who's doing it, who's marketing, and also I keep a track of their performance over time. Yeah, that means a year later, are they still running ads? A year later, if they are running ads, how's it changed? And what I've seen in the past year or two, you know, when something is revealed and people, the market catches onto it, people start doing it. But over time, you'll see it actually consolidates down to the people that are really good at what they do, they have a lot of good data and they have the best conversions and the best teams to actually be able to handle it. So. A lot of it is like the, literally the 80-20. Most uh, over time, most of the market will go to the top 20 people. So make sure if you are doing it, make sure to do it well. Don't diversify yourself across too many platforms. Put you know more money, more resources into one platform. Uh, obviously, you know it's uh, you know at least have a backup just in case something happens. But I do definitely see a consolidation of less competition and also less copying. Um, I noticed this when I, when I started getting copied. I realized what am I, what's not got, not what's not being copied. Things that are very easily that could be copied are 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 copied, but the things that are hard to copy are not copied. For example, if you have results or things for your clients, that's very hard to duplicate. So you know if you're you know basically future proof yourself, collect testimonials, results, and get and display those uh, those from your clients, and you'll be less likely to be copied. And the third is, which I think we've been going through this transition in the past year or two, but even more so this year, is just more of a hybrid model of a law firm. That means you have, I think the most optimized kind of system for your operations is to have in-house managers and directors who oversee a virtual day-to-day -day operations. I've been through different variations of this, and that is something that I think is very clear to us, that that is the most efficient way to run a law firm. Just make sure that your day-to-day 80% of your team should be virtual at this point, or should be eventually. And then and the 20% that those important roles, the directors and managers should be in-house that you have good uh, that you have good control with and you can work with them directly to be able to manage the, the virtual operation. You know, so um, I, this, uh, the second point, I just missed it again. I didn't miss it. You said it, but you, it, because the first was AI and the last was hybrid. Second was that this consolidation of the market. Of the market. Yeah. So what, what I think is brilliant about that, it's interesting, is that I think that is kind of the way uh, things are going. And, um, you know, AI is, uh, what, what's interesting about that is I think it's going to force people to, uh, you know, you, you're not going to be able to keep up with someone that's utilizing AI correctly. That's one thing. And I think the idea of the hybrid market, it's very interesting that you say that because I know that even in our own office, we have more and more remote workers. And what we're finding is that our really key employees, our managers, we like to keep in-house. And not only because it's more efficient, 
but it, there is something, you know, Elon Musk is making people come back to work for a reason. Uh, there is something about that old concrete place where you have people together in a way that is not something you can capture on a Zoom call. But what so our, you know, our, one of our goals is to run our, uh, you know, our paralegals and have the people that are managing them to be in-house, the best one of them, the best manager of them, the best one who can train and and do all that, be part of the superstar team, and then run, uh, and uh, still allowing openings for remote workers to even join that team. Uh, but, you know, that's that will be very, very far and few between, not because remote workers aren't capable of doing that, but because of that desirability to have them in-house unless you actually move someone here from the Philippines or India or many of the other places that, you know, that's the beautiful thing about remote workers. South America is blown up now with remote workers on the Eastern time. And, you know, you guys had the benefit, you know, it's not really the benefit. The Filipinos, it's hardworking. You know, these guys work from 12 to 7. That doesn't mean you're having the best and the brightest. You can but it's not ideal. So, um, but going to the hybrid mode where you have your, your, your superstars in-house and they're managing a team on the outside is, uh, that's brilliant. And I love the idea of, of, of consolidation because I think that's naturally going to happen. And so, uh, you know, it's funny, you talked about platforms. Were you thinking just, you were thinking globally, maybe macro and then on a micro level, TikTok, by the way, because <laughs> do you think TikTok's going away? There's a chance. There's yeah. a chance that there's definitely at least a chance. I'm um, in what kind of blew me out of the water uh, a couple of months ago. I realized a couple of the people, a couple of the law firms who jumped onto TikTok early, ditched TikTok. Um, and let me explain why. They explained that the relationship that you built through TikTok is very weak. And talk about sociology. Finally, the 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 connections, the neurons between the the nodes are not that strong, just because the quantity is high. And anybody can, and then the barrier of entry is low. So, you know, everybody could do TikTok. On the other hand, YouTube, higher barrier of, uh, of entry, um, longer time that you're actually consuming the content, deeper conversation, these kinds of, uh, uh, kinds of content, these, you know, long form kind of content does a much better job of building a nurturing relationship um, than short form, uh, you know, first date kind of kind of relationships. And yeah, you know what you're speaking to really is not, not as the YouTube videos that are between 30 seconds and two minutes, right? Versus the shorts that are 30 seconds or less, which is just another cutting, they're just copying uh, TikTok, which is why it, that that's right. It's a great analogy, the first date kind of thing. It's the YouTube video, which is interesting because YouTube has always been there, right? It's been available for people uh, to put out content. And, you know, so there was such a great push to do YouTube videos. And now with the shiny thing in the room, like TikTok, people are not spending any time on that YouTube channel, which is probably a mistake. Um, and it's still a great time. Still a very good time for YouTube. Uh, I remember like six years ago, feeling like it was too late. And then uh, now everyone feels like it's too late. And then in five years, people think too late. Just let go of that. It's always a good time. But again, as I mentioned, it's a higher bear of entry. And really does weed out the people that are really doing it for the right reasons versus people that are just like trying to do it to get some result, instant results. It doesn't work that way. And again, I think over time, everything is just um, uh, the market leans towards people that are playing the long-term game and, and separates out and weeds out the people that are playing the short-term game. Uh, again, another analogy is kind of like crypto. <laughs> this whole thing, what happened in the past year is just separate. Anybody that was short-term minded sold and lost money. 
versus people who just are holding on and, and going to check back in, in 10 years and see what happens. Right. Um, let's talk about uh, another topic that we share that uh, I don't really share with you. I just love it. I'm not very good <laughs> at it. Let's do it. Let's do it. You're better. Um, is uh, poker. So tell me about when and how you learn poker and what your theories about poker and life are. Because every poker player who actually plays has some theories about uh, how poker and life are very, very similar. Sure. So I, I think like most people, I, I got onto it a bit like watching the, the WSOP, um, the whole moneymaker and the year, a couple of years before that even. Um, start off with that. I remember playing my first time about 15, 16 years ago when I finally put it to test and I started basically, you know, doing well and dominating the game. I guess all those, you know, hours and days of watching kind of paid off. Um, but I feel like with poker, you either have it or you don't. It definitely helps to have it, it, the if factor, right, Bill? Could you agree? There's yeah. people that just have the if factor who just are either they, they're usually they're people, uh, they're uh, kind of people oriented, kind of people who understand feelings that have high EQ. Um, they see patterns. There's some IQ there. But um, through my experience of playing for the past 15 years, I've learned so much about life. So let's go through that. Maybe I'll share one and you share one, Bill, and then we'll go back and forth. Sure. Um, the first thing is for me is how to handle how to handle your feelings when things are not going your way. As we know, any game, anything could happen at any given game. You could get very unlucky. You could get uh, coolered. But the bigger picture is how, what are you gonna do? how are you going to handle it? What are you going to do the next hand when that happens? And most people lose their cool. And if they get one bad beat, that means it's over. The rest of the night, they're, they're good, you know, good luck. Um, but I learned it's much better to stay, try to still uh, stay as level-headed as possible. Brush it off. If need be, you know, go take a walk, come back. But really, um, you got to stay level-headed, basically. And that really resonates itself in business, in life, in relationships, and everything else that you do. Build yep. So I, I, I think for me, a big one is not my idea, uh, but it's from that song, you know, know when to fold them. And so that's a tough one, you know, know when to fold your cards. So, you know, I think that's that, that's one of the hardest lessons uh, for me in poker, but I think it's good for our listeners and for poker players, it applies to life. But when you have a card and when you have some cards, I'll give you a good example is if you, let's say you have uh i can use even pocket aces but i think maybe pocket jacks might be better to explain it you know you start off with pocket jacks and uh you uh you know you you start off in position you raise a lot of money uh the 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 flop obviously comes out queen king 10 or something or not queen king two or something and so you're maybe in a good position but then a three comes out and another like five comes out or whatever, and you bet and you got your money in because you got it in early to get a lot of people out. But you know, the, there's a guy that called, and a couple of guys that called, and you know, and and then it comes out, and you gotta you gotta get away from the hand. I think those hands are easy to get away from, probably, but there are a lot of people that hold on to hands. Uh, and like in life, if you're starting a, an idea in a business, you should you should see a lot of that to execute it through. Uh, but there are times where you've got to pivot and in folding your cards, it's almost like a pivot. You're just kind of saying, look, I give up. I've invested good money. It's going to hurt to your point about being level-headed. Maybe it hurts you because maybe you even overbet it or you didn't feel good about it. But if you don't get away from it, you're going to get, you're going to get hammered at the end. 
And there are people that play that can't get away from hands. And so do you know who the person was? Was it, uh, it was a famous folk singer and maybe you can look it up who said, uh, know when to fold them, but that is a brilliant lesson. I think I've learned in life. And it's also something I'm still learning at the poker table. So totally. yeah, totally. let me share another one is, uh, just paying attention, paying attention to people and what's going on, on the table. A lot of people just like, you know, or, you know, whatever they're, messing around or you know just socializing but if you actually pay attention you could get a lot of information and i'm going to give some you know for people that are interested in poker just reading people one-on-one essentially the easiest and the most uh useful thing you can do is just ask yourself is this person interested more interested or less interested compared to when the cards came out easiest kind of question to ask when the cards came out is this person more interested or less interested ask a very polarizing question if you, say, if you say more interested, then now at least you have two choices. Are they more interested because they have a good hand or is it because they have a worse hand? Usually it's because they're more interested. They have a, they're leaning towards a better hand. Um, and that right there, again, just ask a very polarizing question, interested or not. And from that kind of play, uh, go down the, the decision tree, then it will kind of really increase your chance of you getting it right. Yeah, I, I, I think also uh, that's a great, great point. I think also poker is about uh, communication and, uh, uh, testing people. So I'll give you a ex good example. You talk about number one level headed. Uh, I don't do this at my home games cause I don't want to lose my friends, but when I play with strangers, I'm usually the nicest guy at the table. So one of the things I've learned from poker is, is that you can, even with professional players, if you get the di the, the dialogue going and they really, really like you, they'll still take your money. But there are times where they may take less of your money and you become the person that that binds the table. But it's very and how I learned this lesson, though, that's very, very interesting is I, I probably done this when I've been thrown out of casinos because I am crazy, which is probably one of the reasons why you're more successful than I am, is that I don't have boundaries. So sometimes what I'll do is I'll play, let's say, not saying you don't play this hand. It's called the Gus Hansen hand. Yep. But I'll play two, three big blind and I'll do a raise. It never hits. But sometimes it'll hit. And I don't always play that two, three. And sometimes it's not suited. But you can imagine like when I play that hand and it hits, and it could be any other kind of hand. I like playing six nines, by the way, for some crazy reason. And that's a bad hand to play. But when it hits and people don't see it and uh, they get pissed. And so imagine playing for hours where you've developed a circle of trust and people love you. What I found is then the person gets pissed and he says something to you or she says something to you. Usually... Most it's mainly men that are nasty, actually, that I've, I mean, there's great women players, but they'll say something that's rude, like you're stupid or you're dumb. And I usually use that. And I'll tell you where I'm getting with the lesson, though, is that I use that as a way for me to be like, you just call me stupid. Now, I never upset by that because all my friends make fun of me. I've been made fun of, thrown out of schools, picked on since a kid. I mean, I've gone, I've been a bully, been bullied. So for me, it's like controlling the heat. And I just am like, oh, so he just said that. And you know how poker says they have rules, but they don't have rules. The cool guys are like, there's no rules, but there's rules. So like, for instance, you shouldn't talk about the person. Hey, you know, I see your wife looking. I'm going to take out some Viagra because my wife's over there. I'm 59, but I'm not sure that would help you because where would you even find it? <laughs> now, what's interesting about this is you want to you edit this, Sam? Is that the table has been sitting there for three hours seeing you as the nice guy. 
This is the power of socialization. They don't want to change their opinion of you. You have now called that guy out and his wife is looking. You've said the worst thing you could possibly say to a man or any person's like, the Viagra ain't going to help you because you can't find it. And yet the table around you is still supportive of you. And they're actually against that person who started by calling you stupid. So what I learned from poker is, is that people, it's almost like when you support a president, for example, and you just can't get away from it because you don't want to, you don't want anyone to change your opinion because you've made that opinion of that person. And it's important that you made it. So that's kind of a weird one, but it is something I learned from poker, which is when people are committed to something, a person, it's hard for them to back off. And and it, it's hilarious. And I do that to A, piss that guy off, and then to see if I'm still loved by the table. And usually I still am, even if I'm being escorted out of the casino. You're like, oh, I'll see you. Hey, we should get a drink. Give me a card before you leave. And I'm like, I've done it on purpose to just test that 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 thing because I think in people, the power of personality is so important. If people like you, they're, what, they're more willing to stick by you. Unfortunately, that's a horrible lesson, but... You're creating that dynamic to be a fun person to be around with. That usually is a positive association, which usually leads to good things. Um, yeah. Actually, out of my notes is like, if you're a good player and you're no fun, no one's going to play with you. And that means you're not going to ever win money. So make sure, as Bill said, be fun and have, be some, somebody that people want to play with. Oh, yeah. I'm friends with uh, this guy and who uh, does the poker tour for he and he plays and he announces for Spanish, uh, the Spanish poker tour. He does a European poker tour. He goes around. He's, he's Spanish. Actually, he's a Spaniard. And uh, we became friends playing with each other. We were playing with a whole table of French people, Sam. And uh, I was looking up on my translator how to F with people in French. And it was so funny. We all got along with each other and uh, it was fun. But what other lessons? That's like four quick ones. Although that last one, I digress, but it's still a lesson. Another one is read through people. That means truly understand who, like, who they are and what are they here for. On the poker table, you could generally tell the mood that they're in. And then also when, you know, when they start talk, talking, are they usually does not, are they more of a conservative person? just sitting here has all the time in the world or they're here because they're on a mission to make as much money as they could because their friend's about to go pick them up in two hours and that really leads to in real life if you know a person and you understand what you know their intent and thing behind it and you play the game with those types of people and that's what i do we all i mean we all essentially we create uh, our first impressions with people for me i'm the same way you know i kind of have a feeling value and that really leads me to whether I want to do business with you, want to you know bring you on as a client. If you know, it just we just don't rub the wrong way. I just know it's not going to go anywhere. So why even waste time? So just make sure again have the right intentions. Literally, it's, that's all starts internally. Um, you got to believe in it. You can't just fake it. Take it. People can read through the fakeness, but if you you know if you have the right intentions, then good things will happen. I'm going to leave with the last one, which I think is really really important. Although I think you could add so many more, but then the last one is data math. Um, and, and, and one of the weakest parts of my game, which is why I don't play professionally, nor would I win long-term, uh, and why my sons are so good at it. They had seven eighties on their SATs. Uh, they are learning the emotional intelligence part of the game, but, and I have a feeling you're probably good at math, but data is the most important thing because if you don't know the data, um, even you, if you know EI, you can, it's hard to read professional players who both have EI, emotional intelligence, and they have the data. 
because they, they are, and the math, they're good at both and they understand it. So you sometimes can't, you can be able to make predictions based on things. And also you can make money um, on percentages. Yeah, right there. You make money on percentages of, uh, you know, how do you make money long-term if you're not betting right and putting enough money in when the cards are, what the percentages of what's coming out. I think data is very important. And obviously that applies to business. You You, you can't, you know, poker is not just gambling. It's gambling with uh, based upon math and g- based upon emotional intelligence. And I think business is like that too. So, um, I, I hate when people are like Daniel Negreanu has got great emotional intelligence. Yeah, I, that guy probably has a lot. He actually went to the Choice Academy in Las Vegas, uh, which is a, an academy. If if I don't know if you know this, but for our listeners, it teaches a lot about EI. But that's not why he also knows what you have in your hand. He also knows math, cold, stone cold. And he's a stone cold killer because he knows math. Right. It's multifaceted. It's not one thing. So you got to have it all. You got to have to, as you mentioned, the EQ, know your math, be a people a reader, and you know, have all that going in order to increase your chance of being successful. Yep. So we went over uh, ClickFunnels, your legal academy, went over 2023, <laughs> and we went over poker. We also went over the fact that I'm now a slave to your uh, Zoom. Uh, you, <laughs> you said 45 minutes limit, I'm like, no, Bill, we don't seem like the type to only take 45 minutes for our conversations. I could uh, have to ask for my podcast back. <laughs> uh, I definitely appreciate talking to you. Is there something that you would like to leave our audience uh, with where they can reach you or reach your academy, uh, would you please tell them how to reach you? Sure. Uh, so inspiration fades. So if you got inspired in any shape or form, if you're a lawyer and you're looking to be a successful lawyer, mm-hmm. uh, then check out mylegalacademy.com. We're playing the long-term game and we're basically helping. We've been helping over 520 law firm owners uh, scale and automate the law firm. So if you're interested, just go to My Legal Academy and book a call to speak to us. Well, thank you, Sam, for having you on. Uh, you're a wonderful uh, guy uh, and a uh, great business person. You have a great sense of humor. You also uh, can handle almost anyone throwing anything at you, which I didn't do today, by the way. <laughs> bucket list. One of my bucket lists is to play poker with you on the same table. So I'm going to put it out there and hopefully we'll make it happen. Yeah, you know what? We will, but you'll beat me easily. You know, the no, only- It's all good. It's all fun and games. I like, I, I, I still love to play, dude. You know what? There's nothing better than playing in the tournaments and taking out a pro, actually. Amazing. But I have to tell you, that's luck. For me, it's luck, and I don't bullshit about that. But uh, yeah, I'll, 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 we can talk off air about our poker. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you so much, Bill. Lawman's out. Bye. Well, thanks for listening. The Lawman wants to hear from you. So if you have any questions, give him a shout out. Follow him on Instagram at Bill's the Lawman. You can also visit the website at www.thelawman.net and on YouTube at Bill the Lawman Umansky. And there'll be a place there where you can ask questions. And if you have any questions about your business or anything, just hit them up and we'll try to get an answer to you. We try to bring the best advice that we possibly can. And if you thought it was good, talk to your friends and we'll see you next week.